uh, we're glad that you're here. We're in week number two uh, of this series, Jesus is King. Last week, James got us started uh, with the first name that we find in Isaiah 9, 6. And this morning, we're looking at the second name. Before we get into that, though, uh, speaking of James, James is also our... Uh, small groups director, and for the last six months or so, he's been working on this discipleship process uh, called Rooted. And we are encouraging all of you to consider this 10-week uh, process. Uh, it will give you, uh, it will set the tone and the rhythm of your spiritual development in ways uh, that is disciplined and structured uh, so that you can deepen your faith long-term. It's not just another Bible study. It actually is a process facilitated within a 10-week small group setting uh, that gives you the tools and the disciplines uh, to strengthen your faith and, uh, and deepen your devotion and your walk with God. So you have a place, I believe, on your connection card, or you can go to Connection Point and ask more questions about that. Uh, it starts in January. So grab your Bible or bring it up on your device, Isaiah chapter 9. It's uh, on page 573 if you use the Bible that's provided in your seatbacks. Uh, I'm going to set up the context uh, of this verse uh, in just a minute, and then I'm going to read a longer section of Scripture found in Isaiah 9. So if you want to grab your Bible and follow along with that reading, you can do that. But here's the story or the context that we find ourselves in this series, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. In the previous chapter, chapter 8, Isaiah the prophet is predicting the coming invasion of the empire of Syria. Uh, the Syrian uh, Empire. And during this time in Israelite history, uh, the Israelite nation has now been divided into what we would call northern Israel and southern Judah. There are 10 tribes in Israel and two tribes in Judah. I'm going to put a slide up so that you can have somewhat of a visual context of what's happening here. Both nations had their own kings. Uh, most of them were bad kings. They didn't honor God or follow God, and they reaped the consequences of that because the, the prophets then uh, came along and confronted their disobedience. They warned them of destruction if they didn't turn to God, and of course, they didn't turn to God. So the northern tribes of Israel were exiled to Assyria, which is uh, located in the northern, uh, 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 northern part of what today is called Iraq, and then the southern tribes of Judah are carried off directly east into a, uh, an empire called Babylon, which is now uh, the central part of Iraq. And so the book of Isaiah uh, speaks uh, to this time in history. In fact, it's a collection of prophecies spoken to both the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. He talks uh, to both of them. And like all the prophetic books that you find in the Bible, it includes both good news and bad news. I know some of us, when we think of prophets, we think of just the bad stuff that the prophets predicted uh, that would happen. But that's not, that's not the case. The prophets always had a message of warning and a message of hope. They had good news but they, uh, and they had bad news. Now, I don't, all of us are, are somewhat different when it comes to good news and bad news. Wh which one you want to hear first? Do you want to hear the good news first or the bad news first? And uh, some of us want to hear the good. Some of us want to hear the bad. It's like, you know, like the doctor who called his patient with good news and bad news. And so the patient said, well, let's start with the good news first. And so the doctor says, uh, you have eight weeks to live. Eight weeks to live? That's the good news? What's the bad news? And the doctor says, well, I should have called you seven weeks ago. Um, so, you know, we have all kinds of corny jokes about good news and bad news. Here's the deal, friends. The gospel of Jesus Christ is both bad news and good news. And you cannot appreciate the good news unless you understand the bad news. 
You will, not, you will not embrace and value a savior unless you realize and understand that you're lost. And so the bad news is that you are a sinner separated from God. But the good news is that Jesus has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. He, he has paid the sin debt for you. And like all of the prophets, all the prophets of the Old Testament are the same. Within every prophetic book of the Bible that you read, you get the bad news. There are consequences when you dishonor God, when you reject God, when you don't obey God. Uh, but none of the prophets share the bad news without giving them, uh, giving them a message of hope. God desires no one, no one to perish, but that all would come to repentance. He wants you back and will do what he can to get you back. That's the story of the prophets. Now, we don't have time to read the entire chapter uh, 8 uh, before we get to chapter 9, but that's what Isaiah is doing. He's predicting the, the Assyrian invasion because of their disobedience. The Assyrians are coming, and you're going to get carted off into captivity. You're going to live like slaves in a foreign land, and it's going to get very, very dark. I'll put just one verse on the screen. Uh, look at this. He uses the analogy of darkness to describe their experience distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, describing a real sense of hopelessness. That's chapter 8, hopelessness, darkness. But friends, you just turn the page. You just go to the very next chapter, and you get the other side of God's message. This is not what God wants for you. This is not God's heart toward you. He loves you, and he has a plan for your life that is good and full of hope. Good and full of hope. That's the phrase that comes from the prophet Jeremiah. God has plans for you that are good and full of hope. All the prophets did this. The good news, or excuse me, the bad news, you're lost. The good news is God has a plan to get you back. And you know what, friends? That's your story. That, that's your, you've rejected God. You've not always honored God in your life. But God, when you weren't looking to God, God was always looking for you. When you had no thought of God, God was always thinking of you. When God was not a part of your plan, God always had a plan for you. So this is the context that we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 9. So stand with me, if you will. I'm going to read, I'm going to start with verse 2. And then when we get to verse 6, I want all of us to read that verse out loud uh, together. Okay, so verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, he's just talked about captivity. And now this message of hope. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 6, let's read this together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then in verse 7 it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Say with me, will do this. Will do this. The Lord of hosts will do this. You can be seated. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. The English translation switches uh, this Hebrew phrase, mighty God, um, uh, 
because the original Hebrew text uh, has God first. In the original Hebrew word, God, El, is the word for God. Uh, that's the, uh, and Gabor uh, is the word for mighty or strong or powerful. God of might, uh, literally, or God the mighty, God almighty. It's the word describing a brave warrior. It was used of David in his conflict with uh, confrontation with Goliath. Uh, someone who is strong, not only strong, but per, uh, persuasive and influential and charismatic. Someone who's successful, someone who takes no grief and gets things done. He is almighty. Uh, David was the hero, hero who fought for the, the victory of his, his people, the nation Israel. And so God is our hero who fights for our deliverance and victory. And so even in the midst of destruction and despair, in the midst of darkness, deep darkness, Isaiah says to uh, God's people, he says to us, we have a God of power. He is God Almighty. He is El Gabor. Our God is a mighty God. Zephaniah 3 says, God is mighty to save. Job 9, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Psalm 147, great is our God and abundant in might. Psalm 89, O God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? And then Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, the song of the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, almighty, almighty. Now, it didn't look that way 2,000 years ago. When the incarnate God was all wrapped up in rags, nestled in a feeding trough in a cow stall, friends, look, uh, looks can be deceiving. It's not as it appears. In our human experience, when darkness is our closest friend, we wonder, is God almighty? Isaiah 9-6 is not just a pretty prophecy for the future Messiah. This is a message of hope, a promise from a faithful God to an unfaithful people. We have to remember that. And here's the deal. Hardships and struggles and disappointments, all that we experience, loss, pain, the words that we would describe our days of darkness and distress, rises to the surface our core beliefs about God. Friends, nothing challenges what we believe about God more than the distress and the darkness and the gloom of anguish that is so often characterizing our existence. The, the God of power goes on trial every time something goes wrong in our lives, right? Be honest. We, we question. I mean, what a mighty God we serve is, is a fun song to sing when everything is going as planned and when the deliverance and victory has been secured. But we're in, when we're in the midst of this battle, when we're in the middle of this darkness, do we not wonder if God has lost control? Is he really mighty? Where is he at all? And why is this happening? Well, we have four names for God, for the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Last week we learned that he is in our deepest confusion. God is the wonderful counselor that brings us light and truth. And this week we learn that in the midst of all that is wrong in our lives, he is the mighty God or the God of might. Now the debate about God's existence has existed since the existence of men and women. And suffering, things going wrong, has been the most common argument against the God who is here. Those who reject him uh, reason this way. Uh, three statements. If God were all-powerful, he could stop suffering. Is he mighty or not? 
The Bible says he made it rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Why can't he stop rain? Why can't he stop a tsunami from killing 230,000 people across 14 countries? Remember that? Or a number of other things. If God were all-powerful, he could stop this. If God were all-loving, he would stop this. I mean, what kind of a God allows predators to, to feed on vulnerable children? Why is there so much poverty and conflict in the world? I mean, if he cares, why doesn't he do something? So the argument goes. And the argument concludes this way. There is suffering. Therefore, God does not exist. How can God be real when there's so much bad stuff going on in the world? And I have to tell you, this, this logic, I get so why, why so many people buy into this logic. I, I can see where this would make sense. Even a lot of believers have difficulty countering this argument. What do we, what do we say to that? Even those who want to believe in the God of the Bible, we find ourselves asking the same questions, don't we? When things go wrong, when things are bad, it's human nature for us to doubt and question the goodness of God and the greatness, the power of God when we're sitting in the middle of anything but good. So what believers and unbelievers can't agree on is that there, there is evil in the world, that bad things often happen, and they often happen to the wrong people. We can agree on that. But here's where the problem lies. And this is, this is important for us, friends. Uh, without God, if there is no God, and if God is not in control, we really have no reason to expect any answers. There is no explanation to the evil that exists. And what's more, without God, we have no reason to complain <laughs> about the evil that exists. So stay with me for, for just a moment. We're going we're gonna to have a, a, an apologetics lesson. We're going to argue for the existence of God here for just a second. And this is what you struggle with. This is what your friends struggle with. Anyone who would reject God, the true evolutionist who would argue that God does not exist and that nature is all that there is, so therefore, there is nothing more natural than what nature does. Uh, they call it the survival of the fittest, right? I mean, the weak are preyed upon by the strong. Uh, you either survive or you don't. That's just the way nature happens. Bad things happen. And without God, but without God, one would argue you can't even distinguish good from bad if there's no God. It's just what it is. It's just nature taking its course. So, why are, so what's the problem? Why do we take issue with bad stuff? Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, if there is no God, why, why are we even having this conversation? If we're just a bunch of chemicals waiting to rot when we die, why aren't we just like the animals? You see, without God, you have no reason to expect a better life, and you have no reason to complain when there's no answers to that, that life that you want. But yet there's something inside every one of us Solomon called it the eternal, being housed within every one of us. We long for something better. We know that there's a reason for this. We're not like the animal kingdom. Dogs don't debate the existence of God. You pet them, you feed them, they think you're God. Cats, you pet them, you feed them, they think they're God. Okay? Uh, Dolphins, I've heard that dolphins are really smart, but I, until Flipper writes a book on the existence of God or the problem of evil, I'm not really interested in natural selection. I mean, just, there's just something about you and me created in the image of God. There's this innate sense of wanting to make sense out of our world, out of our life, especially when things go wrong. There's got to be something more than what we see and experience beyond ourselves. And so I would submit that the problem of evil, friends, the problem of suffering, is a far greater problem for unbelievers than it is for believers. 
uh, you cannot explain the problem of evil without God. So what does the Bible say about this issue? And it's all through the Bible. And in fact, many characters in the Bible experience this firsthand. You read the Bible and you discover that most of those who inclined to believe in God's existence were some of the most honest with God about their pain and suffering and the problem of evil. In the book of Psalms, we call them the Psalms of Lament. Lament means crying or expressing deep sorrow for suffering and injustice. There was a kind of a, have you ever vented toward God? It's okay if you have. Because people in the Bible, they just, God, why is this happening? Why has everything gone wrong? Why are things so dark? Uh, and where are you in all of this? And what are you doing or what are you not doing? What's, what's happening here? Moses and David and Jonah, uh, Job, the classic example, all of them wrestled with God over the circumstances of life. We do too. Is God in control? Because right now it feels like everything is out of control. Can God handle this? Because my circumstances right now would indicate that he can't or that he won't? How does the darkness of life and the power of God go together? Friends, this, is a, this has been a theological issue that's been debated uh, for, for centuries. This has been going on uh, since the beginning of time. Uh, I took seminary classes, year-long classes, trying to understand uh, the, the power of human choice and the power of the, the sovereign God. Uh, it took me a whole year to try to understand it. I'm going to boil it down to about four minutes. You're going to get the answer. So uh, save you some college tuition. Here's, here's the Reader's Digest version. God created you in his image with the freedom to choose. We call it human freedom. Human freedom. Adam and Eve had human freedom in the garden. They had the power to choose. They could obey God or they could go their own way. And the story tells us that they chose their own way and it did not go well for them. It never goes well for us when we choose our own way. We're still reaping the consequences of that choice. It's all you need to know as to why things are wrong in the world. It's all you need to know to know why things are wrong in you and in your life. Because of Adam and Eve, we all have a sin nature and none of that goes well for us when we choose wrongly. We are created beings who have exercised our own moral freedom in ways that oppose the desire of the one who created us. And so as a result, we live in a world broken by human sin. However, at the same time, uh, at the same time that the Bible affirms human freedom, it also affirms the power of God. We call it sovereignty, the divine sovereignty. And so sovereignty is just a way of saying that God is in control, that God is always in control. He is sovereign over creation, over history. And this is, where, this is where it gets really difficult because even though we choose to mess up our lives by our own choices, God is not biting his fingernails, wondering how to get the train back on the tracks. You know, what do I do now? He never asked that question. The Bible speaks to this. Uh, and, and this, we call it a paradox, not, not a contradiction, but a, par a paradox of human freedom and divine sovereignty. God is working out his purposes in spite of, or even because of, even through the free will choices of man. Now, again, some people look at this as it were a contradiction. These, these two statements, man can choose and God is in control, one of them can be true, but both of them cannot be true. Uh, but friends, this is not a contradiction. Uh, this is not a, a 
an either-or situation. This is a both-and situation. I have free will, and God is in control, and I can't understand that, but it's absolutely true. God is not responsible for my abuse of moral freedom. I've messed up my life, and I've broken the world. But regardless of what I've done, God has a purpose that cannot and will not be thwarted. He will do this, as Isaiah 9, 7 says. A good example of this is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis where human freedom and divine sovereignty come crashing in on one another. In fact, this morning, uh, the kids are on stage, the rest of the kids in Grace Kids uh, this morning, they're learning about the life of Joseph. Uh, so if you don't understand it from me this morning, they'll tell it to you when you get home, okay? Uh, because they're learning this. They, the, the brothers of Joseph exercised their moral freedom and decided to sell their brother into slavery. And through a whole series of coincidences, uh, he ends up in Egypt, in the palace, just in time for a famine to hit the entire region. And his brothers, uh, in time, come to Egypt looking for food and just happen to come face to face with the consequences of their choice years ago, their bad choice. But that choice served to save a family from starvation. Joseph said it this way in Genesis chapter 50. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Now notice, the operative word in this verse is intended. And notice, it is used both for the brothers of Joseph and the God of Joseph. Who actually intended this to happen? Did the brothers do this or did God do this? And what the Bible forces us to do, friends, is stand in the middle of this paradox, which we cannot understand or explain. We can only say what the Apostle Paul said hundreds of years later in the book of Romans. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable, his inscrutable means impossible to understand. How God uses our human freedom to accomplish his eternal plan, something that we will not be able to figure out or fully comprehend this side of heaven. Now, next week, we're going to look at this third title for Jesus the Messiah, Everlasting Father. And I don't want to get ahead of myself this morning, but it's really difficult to separate these two aspects of God, mighty God and everlasting Father. God is mighty. Yes, he can do anything. What he plans to do, he will do. But friends, his might is always directed toward your good. He is not just a mighty God. He is an everlasting Father. His he is powerful, but he is also compassionate. And his compassion is powerful, and his power is compassionate. God will do what he wants, and you will not stop him. But what he wants is your good. He created you out of love, and he intends to love you through the darkness of your life. How do we know that? Well, we come to the New Testament and we find these words. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Friends, we have come to this time of Christmas and the story of Christmas is all about the God of the universe becoming like us so that he could 
one, identify with the brokenness of human existence, but secondly, to provide a remedy for that brokenness. You see, God's response to evil is the cross. Friends, this is the message of Christmas. Christmas has much more to do with the cross than it does the manger. God sent himself. Friends, he didn't, he didn't send someone else. He came himself. He took on human flesh himself and human form, put himself in our place to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The baby in Bethlehem is the Lord God Almighty, powerful to save, and he is good. Now, here's the deal. You read the Bible, and friends, the Bible is not some divine answer book for all the reasons why you find yourself in a dark place. You cannot flip through the pages of Scripture and find a specific reason for your particular pain. When you are in, if you are in a place of distress and darkness, you can't go to the Bible and find out what that specific answer is. But the Bible will tell you what that answer is not, what it cannot be. It cannot be because God has forgotten you. God, God came for you. It cannot be because God doesn't understand you. He became like you. It cannot be because God doesn't care for you or that the universe is out of control. Think about this. What, would an uncaring deity go to the cross for your eternal problem and then ignore your temporary struggle? I mean, the Bible does tell us, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? Friends, this is what the cross says to us. God takes onto himself the abuse of our human freedom. And in his divine plan, which he will do, he solves the problem of pain forevermore. Friends, the cross is not just the story of Jesus suffering for us. It is Jesus suffering with us. Have you been wronged? Look to the cross where an innocent man was executed for you. Are you in a period of loss? Have you experienced loss? Look to the cross where a son was forsaken by his father for you. Are you hurting? Look to the cross where the broken body of Jesus has secured your ultimate healing. Friends, he is El Gabor, the almighty God, the God of power. He can do this and he will. He will do this. Now, what does this mean practically for us? In just a couple of minutes, I want to give you two application points for what it means uh, for God to be our almighty God. Here's the first thing. When God is almighty, that enables you to change. The mighty God enables me to change. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The almighty God enables me. Friends, the abuse of human freedom has taken its toll on, on our character. Would you, would you say, <laughs> agree to that? One of the aspects of the gospel is that God didn't just come for us. He came to dwell in us, to give us his spirit, to transform us by his spirit into the people we were created to be. He is not only able to save you, uh, but he is able to transform you. He is able to rescue you out of your hopeless attempt to improve yourself. It's only by the spirit of God that you are transformed into the image of God. He's, he's mightier than your doubts. He's greater 
than your sin. His power is made perfect in your weakness. If he can change water into wine, he can change your character defects. The Almighty God enables you to change. Here's the second thing. He empowers you to conquer. Empowers you to conquer. I don't know what you're going through this morning, but Paul tells us that we are more than conquerors uh, through Christ. Uh, this, this word can be translated super, su- super conquerors. If you're the winner, you're the winner, right? How can you be more of a winner than you really are? But this is, this is El Gabor. It's always more than you could ask for or imagine. You are the champion of champions. Not in ourselves. We are not strong. We are not wise. We are not sufficient. But we have a mighty warrior who fights for us, who calms the storm and makes demons flee, and who gives sight to the blind and raises the dead. And if he can do that, friends, he can give life to your mortal body. And nothing will separate you from his love. He is God Almighty. He is the mighty God. Ushers, we are moving into a time of communion, and I want to leave all of us with this thought. Jesus, Jesus is our El Gabor. He is the mighty God. And friends, he needs to be both. He needs to be both mighty and he needs to be God. Friends, this is the gospel. He needs to be mighty in order to withstand the wrath of a just God for the sins of his people. And he needs to be God in order to absorb those sins onto himself on the cross. And as mighty God, friends, Jesus is sufficient. He alone is sufficient for your brokenness to give you life. So I want to leave you with this scripture as we prepare our hearts for communion. Isaiah 53 Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for reminding us of who you are and what you've done. And by allowing us this opportunity to celebrate the cross and to bask in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, may we remember that you are the almighty God and what you set out to do, you will do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.